Father, we're grateful for this time. Thank you for the privilege uh, to gather once again another Sunday as a gift by your grace where we can look up to where our help comes from. We can look up to you. We can bow before you. We can bring everything to you right now. Lay it at your feet and just wait in expectation because you will do great and mighty things today. We need your word. We thirst for you this morning. We're asking now, Father, will you please speak through Caleb? Use him. All the hours of studying and dedication to preparing for today, may he decrease and you increase so we hear straight from heaven. May you encourage believers this morning through your scriptures, and may you draw those that are lost to the cross this morning. We pray for those that are here. We pray for our city, our nation, and to the ends of the earth that the gospel may be preached and that many may come to know you and worship you this morning. Thank you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Good morning. It's great to be here today. I'm so excited to share with you what God has been teaching me here recently. Uh, And it's great to just see your faces. Last time I was up here speaking, it was just the band. You guys were all online watching. So it's just awesome to see a full room uh, of people and and to share in this message together. I want to invite you to turn or tap either way to your way over to Acts chapter 16. We're going to be beginning in the 16th verse of Acts 16. And as you turn there, I want to invite you to, or introduce you to, this, uh, this ship I've been really interested in. Uh-oh. There we go. Uh, the SS United States. This is something I've, I've been learning about. This, is, this, this ship was built by a man named William Gibbs uh, in 1952. It was finished up. And it had a very specific purpose. You can just see by the image just how massive it is. Biggest ship we, we've built um, fastest, strongest, everything for a very specific purpose, and that was to be a, a troop carrier uh, in war. It was meant to send warriors into battle um, and, and fight enemies. That was its purpose when it was built, uh, and it was going to be able to do that at an extremely high capability. However, it never really made it uh, into battle. Its closest uh, attempt was during the Cuban Missile Crisis. It was on standby, so it almost made it into action, and it you know, just didn't quite quite get all the way. Instead, this massive ship became something very different. It became a luxury liner, became a a cruise ship, essentially. Its purpose changed, and so with that, so did its function. So this ship that was built to do incredible things, to be able to send troops anywhere in the world without needing to stop for gas, is now a cruise ship. This ship that could once hold 15,000 Troops at any given time now can only hold about 2,000 troops. And that's because we had to make room for all the excess and lavish lifestyle of the rich and famous who would attend these cruises. So we got to drop down from 15,000 down to about 2,000. You know, you have all these fancy dining halls and need room for theaters and bars and the big staterooms and all that stuff that, you know, you need to have on a cruise ship. And it greatly reduced the ability of the ship to carry a large quantity of people. Uh, Change things because the purpose changed and so did the function. 
David Platt mentions this ship in his book, Radical, kind of talking about the way that in many ways the American church has kind of made this same transition. Built with a very specific purpose to make a difference in a desperate, urgent world with all kinds of need. Meant to send troops into the battlefield and, and fight for justice and for truth and, and all that, except for that in many cases we've settled instead for the comfort and the ease of the luxury liner. And your purpose will dictate your function. We function differently. We lose that urgency. We lose that care for a, a broken and needy and desperate world when our purpose shifts. Just contrast in your mind the, the imagery of, of this massive ship with 15,000 sweaty, armed, brave men just blitzing into battle with the image of a lavish, luxurious party taking place on board the SS United States. Things change when your purpose changes and your function changes. And this is kind of what may be going on with us as an American church Platt would say that we seem to have organized ourselves not to engage in battle for the souls around the world, but to indulge ourselves in the peaceful comforts of the world. You see here, comfort is actually a direct opponent of the work that God is seeking to do in and through the church today. It's, it's standing in the way because it prevents us from heading into battle. So I want to show you today as we look at Acts 16, and we see Paul and Silas engaging in some difficult ministry in the city of Philippi. What, what happens when we're willing to abandon comfort, when we're willing to walk away from our perceived control and stability and ease and comfort? Things change. So pick up with me here in Acts 16, beginning in verse 16. We're going to see a few things that, that God does through these two men as they're willing to step away from their comfort. It says, As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. So they find this girl on their way to the, the place of prayer. This, is what, this was their strategy. They would go to a place where religion is being practiced so they could interact with lots of people. This is their technique. And along the way, they find this girl who is possessed. Now, when I see this picture of, of this young girl, I see someone being exploited on two levels. Just at the surface, she's being exploited by these men who are taking advantage of her so-called gift, right? They're receiving the benefit. They're, they're reaping the reward of her abilities here. So she's being taken advantage of by them. But on a deeper level, on a spiritual level, she's also uh, experiencing the exploitation of this spirit that's taken her over, taken over her body, taken over her mind. She's not her own. And so we recognize this right off the bat. Here is a need that needs to be met. Here is some injustice in the world that Paul and Silas recognize. Now, they're not alone, by the way. They're joined by Luke, who's documenting all this. That's why you hear the word we when he talks. And they're also they've recently been joined by Timothy, um, Paul's apprentice. And so they, they recognize this need. And, and listen to what she says, because it sounds like some good news in, in verse 17. It says, she followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And at our first glance, as a Christian audience, we, we check that. That's, that's good endorsements, right? This is free advertisements for Paul and his ministry, right? This is good for the Philippian audience. They're hearing about this Most High God and about these men who are his servants who are proclaiming how you can be saved. Sounds good. 
But we see in the text that Paul gets annoyed at this message. And it's because there's something a little misleading about this. Like I said, we're a Christian audience. We recognize the truth behind this. Philippi, not a Christian audience. Pagan audience. Uh, a, a city full of, of pagan gods. One of those gods, you may have heard of him before. He goes by the name of Zeus. You ever heard of him? Zeus was the god of the gods, right? On top of Mount Olympus, right? He would have been regarded as the most high god. And so Paul recognizes with this young girl, even though what she's saying is technically true, it could be really confusing. It could be misleading to the people that Paul's trying to reach. And it annoys him. He gets annoyed by this. Not at her, not at the girl, but at the spirit who's leading her to say these things. All right? Just a side note here. I'm a former English teacher, so anytime I get to point out like Englishy terms, I'm going to get excited. Uh, this reference here to the Most High God and this reference to these men proclaiming the way of salvation, we call that, this is, this is when there's a hint in the text about something that's going to happen later on in the story. Remember what we call that? Foreshadowing, remember that? So hold on to this. This is, this is going to come back to us. We're going to see this Most High God and we're going to see men proclaiming the way of salvation later on. Okay? So... As she's saying this, this misleading thing about the Most High God, and there's some confusion with Zeus, look at, look at what happens. She keeps doing this for many days. It's verse 18. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit. Key word here, to the Spirit, not to the girl, to the Spirit. I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Notice here, Paul and, and Silas and their buddies, they're servants of the real Most High God, right? They, they would have claimed to that. This girl is a servant of Zeus, a spokesperson for Zeus. And what happens here in this little battle between the two forces? The servants of God cast out the demons from the servant of Zeus, which says what to the Philippian audience? This God is the real most high God. Zeus, if he's the God of gods, this is the God of Zeus. He's higher than even Zeus because in that very hour, the spirit was removed from this young girl and she's restored again. Because Paul was willing to act on what annoyed him. Paul was willing to step beyond his comfort and reach into some discomfort. All right? Um, this is the first thing we see Paul doing, abandoning his comfort to fight for in, uh, against injustice. He recognizes the exploitation of this girl by the Spirit and by her owners. And he says, I'm going to do something about it. I'm not just going to talk about my frustration. I'm not going to tweet about it. I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to act. Paul knew when he made this decision, he was stepping away from comfort. Paul had seen the owners. Paul knew the gain they were receiving from her gifts. And he knew he was taking that away from her. Paul knew this was going to lead to some trouble. But he did it anyway. He did it anyway because for Paul, comfort and self-preservation weren't the gauges that Paul used in making his decisions. Glorifying God and engaging in the work of God to meet the needs in this world were the gauges that Paul used. And let me just tell you as a side note here. If our primary gauges in life, in making decisions, are comfort and self-preservation, we will very rarely find ourselves deeply involved in the work that God is doing. If that's how we make our decisions. Paul was willing to step into some injustice to fight for it, fight against it. And it meant walking away from comfort. 
It meant walking away from stability. Because look what happens in verse 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. This is not Facebook marketplace. This is the marketplace where all these big affairs were handled. These rulers are the magistrates of that area who would, would take care of any legal issues, any lawsuits that were brought before the people in the marketplace. And that's what's going on here. Paul and Silas are being accused of this good deed that they've done. They've, they've rescued this girl from bondage, and now they're being condemned for it. Does that give you sort of a picture of the injustice that is taking place in Philippi? You see, these men who were receiving benefit from her and not being punished for it, they're, they're kind of a good picture for us of what the spiritual condition of Philippi would have been. That kind of practice was normal. It was okay. It was accepted. It was not seen as we, we see it now. And to take that away from them was actually looked at as something that was bad. So Paul and Silas are kind of condemned for doing the right thing. Uh, and, and, and notice why. Look, it says that their hope of gain was gone. They, they recognized that they were going to lose the gain that they had secured for themselves. And let me just say this is why such links are, are taken in Scripture to point out the danger of our love of money. This is what we see here. This is what the love of money does to us. It distorts our view of the people around us. And for those slave owners, their love of money reduced this girl to something they could receive benefits from, something they could earn money from, not as a human being with a soul. Our vision of people is completely distorted when the love of money takes us over. And, and just think about it. We don't really love like, the money itself. This is really a comment about comfort. We love what money provides for us. Stability, security, ease, comfort, the ability to enjoy things. That's what it is really about money that is so alluring to us. And this is the effect that it can have on us if it gets out of control. So Paul and Silas make quick enemies of, of her owners and they take legal action. I say legal action. It's not really fair legal action, but they take them to the magistrates and they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. So now notice not only are they, uh, is there some great social injustice going on in the way they're treating this girl and not only are they uh, really being backwards in the way they're handling Paul and Silas, but now we also hear some anti-Semitism here, some racism showing up. We don't want these guys in our city because they're Jews. They're different. We don't accept their practices. Get them out of here. Do you hear the depths of injustice here in Philippi? Clearly, this is not a great place for ministry, is it? Surely, there's nothing good that can come out of Philippi. We've got great injustice. We've got racism. We've got the good guys who are being punished for doing a good thing. This does not seem like the place to do ministry. It is it's no wonder that in the next chapter, people are going to say about Paul and his buddies that they're men who have turned the world upside down. When your world looks like the world Paul and Silas were looking at, any good deed you do is going to look like you're turning it upside down. And I don't think much has changed here. I think we could all list out a, a long line of things that we notice are wrong and backwards and upside down about the world we live in. And that's why involving ourselves in the ministry of restoring order is always really going to lead us away from comfort because of how upside down this place really is. But that, that doesn't stop Paul. He's going to be involved either way and get involved in this. So 
Verse 22 tells us the crowd joined in, attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments of them off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. So they take a beating uh, for this. Really, we believe this is just Paul and Silas taking the beating. Notice that last comment, their, their big accusation was these men are Jews. Um, we, we know that Timothy was part Greek. His dad was Greek, so he would have been excluded from that list. And then it's also many commentators agree that that Luke also was a Gentile, of Gentile background, so he would not have been considered a, a Jew like what they, what they hated about Paul and Silas. So likely this is Paul and Silas here re- receiving this beating. Um, and they're being beaten with rods. And there's something interesting about these rods. Really what it is, it's a, it's a bundle of, of rods that are sort of they're tied together. And they're, they're meant to be linked. And that linking has a very specific purpose. What they're saying here is we've got Roman law and Roman justice, and they are combined. We're joining them together as we beat you. It's basically what they're saying to the prisoner. Ironically, there is no justice here, and there is no law, right, that's really being upheld. These men are being beaten and hated for doing a good deed to a needy person. Uh, and they do it in the name of law and justice. That's how they beat these guys. So you can see how backwards it is when you try to swim upstream and fight the injustice of the world. It will take us away from our comfort. We, we can't have both, okay? And that's why we can't hold on to, to that notion if we really want to be involved in what's, in what's happening. So as we look at verses 23 and 24, you're going to notice some little key words here that really set up this, the story for us. It says, and when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. And then verse 25 begins with, and it was about midnight. So this is basically all the odds have now been stacked against Paul and Silas, right? Like not only are they in prison, they're in the inner prison. And not only are they in the inner prison, they've got their feet fastened to the stocks. And not only is that the case, but also, by the way, it's midnight. So it's pitch black dark. Um, clearly there is no hope for escape barring any kind of miracle, right? That's what it's going to take. We've got to cue the miracle here. We've, it's all been set up for it. Some kind of you know, magical escape route for Paul and Silas, the faithful warriors for justice and truth is, is clearly where we're headed, right? It's what it would, would seem like based on this setup. But there's more to the story. There's more to the story. So it says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. So just in case you didn't see that, remember what I just said just happened to Paul and Silas. They've done a good deed. They've been beaten for it savagely uh, by a bundle of rods. Now they've been thrown into the inner prison, and it's midnight. What would be the comfortable reaction to that? Sleep. That's the only way to escape the suffering and the pain in this moment would be to just go to sleep. Now, unfortunately, the stocks make that really difficult. They, they, they spread your feet and with the chains there, so it makes it really difficult for you to go to sleep. But they're just stuck in their pain. Immense pain. And possibly even some frustration. God, we're doing your work. What's going on here? And how do they respond to that pain? Singing hymns to God. That's their re- reaction to the suffering that they've been placed in, into. Charles Spurgeon, uh, uh, you know, great pastor who would admit that he really dealt with and wrestled with deep bouts of depression, uh, said once, it's easy to sing when we can read the notes by daylight, but the skillful singer is he who can sing when there is not a ray of light to read by. Songs in the night come only from God. And isn't that what we see here? 
Paul and Silas have been completely emptied, and yet they sing. They sing because they found in their discomfort, as they abandoned comfort, they have found the true source of comfort, which can only be found in, in Christ. Uh, they, they find the comfort of a loving Savior who's with them in this desperate, deep, dark place. And they sing about it. They sing about it. Interesting response. Maybe God knows what he's doing when he places us in these situations. Maybe these situations really aren't in the way of God accomplishing what he's trying to do. Maybe these are the way that he's trying to accomplish things in and through us. In the very mess that we find us ourselves in. Like perhaps it's not that, that God sees you in your mess and in this suffering and this hardship that you find yourself in. And perhaps it's not a story about how he can miraculously save you from it or pull you out of it. Perhaps it's that he wants to do something in you and do something through you right in the middle of this storm, right in the middle of midnight. Maybe that's what he's doing. C.S. Lewis would put it this way. God, who made these deserving people, may really be right when he thinks that their modest prosperity and the happiness of their children, in other words, their comfort, are not enough to make them blessed. That all this must fall from them in the end. And that if they have not learned to know him, they will be wretched. Maybe God knows what he's doing. Maybe when we reach a point of complete emptiness, of complete desperation, midnight, chained to the stocks, we find beyond ourselves the comforter who is far superior to any comfort we can find in this world. This is what Paul and Silas experience in that prison cell. And this is what we can experience when we're willing to endure our suffering. I think of what this, the psalmist says in Psalm 69, verse 3. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love. Answer me in your saving faithfulness. Did you notice that phrase, at an acceptable time? He doesn't say, right away, deliver me. He doesn't say, ASAP. He believes in the sovereignty of God, that God is working all things for good. And he says, God, take your time. Take as long as you need. And at an acceptable time, answer me. This is the prayer of someone who is uncomfortably comforted. Someone who is truly relying on the comfort and the strength and the sustenance that only God can provide. And this is what we hear in Paul and Silas as they sing songs of praise in the midst of their pain. That's what we see. Notice something else though about what's happening here. As they're doing this little uh, midnight worship concert, people are listening. The prisoners were listening to them. Guys, people are listening. And they're watching. How do we respond to the difficulties of our lives? What songs are we singing in our pain? They're listening either way. They're going to hear us. Are they going to hear us complaining and grumbling and escape planning or averting the blame or pointing fingers? Or will they hear us patiently waiting and praising the maker who has placed us there? Let me tell you, your witness in the middle of the storm 
speaks louder than at any other place in your life. Because the people are listening to what you, what you do, how you respond. And if we will abandon our comfort and rest in the comforter, we can really make much of this opportunity to witness. This is what we see Paul doing. He makes much of it. Um, it reminds me of Paul's calling back in Acts 9 when, when he was converted at the road of Damascus. Uh, God said something that I used to hear is really harsh. He says, and I, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And I kind of heard that as like, you persecuted my church for so long. You did all this stuff against me. You're going to suffer for it. You're going to have to pay. This suffering is payback for what you did. It's retribution for the way you mistreated my people for so long. I really don't think that's what he's getting at. That, that word must, it, it comes from the Greek day, which means it is necessary. The suffering is necessary. Why? For the sake of my name. See, it is as Paul suffers, as Paul endures these difficult times, that opportunities are created for him to proclaim this name. And without that suffering, those opportunities would not have been there. So God has placed you where he has on purpose. That difficulty is not a roadblock. It is the plan to involve you in the work that he's doing to redeem this world. Don't run away from it. Paul sure didn't. Suffering is not incidental to salvation, but it is instrumental in realizing God's promises according to Scripture. This is what one commentator said about that verse, that this is the instrumental part of how God wants to do the work he's doing, is in the midst of our suffering and pain. Not just because they're there, we'll work around it, but in the midst of it. So the third thing I want you to see about how we abandon our comfort is it's for the purpose of filling the kingdom. As Paul is in this prison cell with Silas and they're doing this concert, people are hearing. They're hearing the good news of this hope that Paul and Silas have in Jesus. This sovereign God who's worth worshiping even in the chains. And Paul and Silas are engaging in the, in the process of filling up God's kingdom with people. Lost souls are hearing the gospel and being transformed by it, as we're going to see here in just a couple of verses. We abandon our, co our comfort so that we can engage in this ministry. So let's keep watching. Verse 26. All the stage has been set for a miracle. Here we go. 26. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. This is it. The red carpet has been rolled out for Paul and Silas, right? Not only have the doors open, your chains have been loosed. You are free to go. You can get out of here. And look at this. It goes further. When the jailer walk and woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. So just a few chapters earlier in Acts, Peter had a similar experience to this, and he was able to escape prison. And the jailer was executed because, you know, Peter got out on his watch. So we see the desperation of this jailer. He's ready to kill himself because of the punishment that would await him if normal people do what normal people do, and they escape as soon as the doors are open. Think about it. It's perfect for Paul. You have it, all you need to walk right out of these doors, and the only person you have to worry about is taking care of himself. The jailer is going to take himself out. You don't have to worry about him. What, what do you say if you're Paul? What do you, how do you react? Run, Silas. Run, right? Isn't that what you do? Get out of here. This is it. 
Surely this is the plan God had. He showed up to set us free so we can go do other ministry elsewhere. Right? Isn't that the response? But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Instead of taking the easy way out, leaving the uncomfortable situation at the earliest spot possible, Paul stayed right there, putting himself in jeopardy, putting his future comfort in jeopardy because he saw a situation that was more important in the present. He didn't run back into comfort the first chance he had. He stayed. He stayed right there. And notice what happens. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. The tables have completely turned. Something big is said to happen. Uh, because we see here as well the we that Paul is talking about when he says we're still here. You know, maybe he means Paul and Silas, but then he says all here. If it's just Paul and Silas with him, he wouldn't say we're all here. He said we are both here. He says we're all here, Right? The chains of every prisoner were loosened. And yet Paul says, we're all still here. Meaning that whatever Paul was doing all night long in, those, in that concert must have had some kind of impact on the other prisoners in that room. And either they were scared of Paul because they think he's responsible for this earthquake and they don't want to see what he can do to them. Or they have come to see and understand for themselves the truth of what Paul and Silas believe in. Either way, they respect him enough to stay. That says something. Your witness in the storm matters because people are watching. And so what happens to, this, to this, this man, the jailer? Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? I wish every gospel conversation started that way where someone just walked up to me and asked it that way. Now, there's a little debate here. Does he mean a physical saving or is he talking about a spiritual saving? You know? And there, there are some arguments on both sides. Obviously, we mentioned the jailer from, from Acts 12 was killed for what he did. He could be looking for, seeking some physical protection here. How do I save my life? You know, I mean, he was just getting ready to kill himself, and, and that might be his concern. Um, the problem with that is that, like, if that's really your, your problem, like, why are you asking Paul? Paul's not really the one to fix that issue. He's not, he doesn't have, like, a business card for a lawyer he can hand him and say, like, check this guy out. You know, that's probably not what he was doing. And even if it was, Paul doesn't take it that way. Uh, Paul takes it the spiritual route and responds. You want to be saved? I don't care if you meant physical or spiritual. I'm going the spiritual route. He says, and they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Jailer became suicidal, and now, when life was about to end for him, now here's the opportunity for real life to actually begin. Because Paul was faithful to remain in an uncomfortable situation. But there is something interesting here. We've got to point this out. He does say, you and your household. And you guys know, uh, hopefully, that when it comes to salvation, I can't do anything by myself to save my household, right? My decision to follow Christ really takes care of me, and that's it. And I think Paul knows that. He's a pretty smart guy. Yet he says here, if you'll do this, you and your household will be saved. So there's an interesting point to be made here. When he says you and your old household, he's referencing the, the Greek term oikos, like the that circle of influence, the people that the jailer was responsible for. You see, Paul had vision, ministry vision. And he recognizes, if I can reach the jailer, who can the jailer reach? 
My message of hope and salvation to the jailer is not just going to the jailer. We need to recognize that. In our fear to step out of comfort and have that awkward conversation with that individual, we don't want to have that conversation. Remember, that individual is not just an individual. Reaching one person is never reaching just one. Paul spoke the truth to the jailer and the whole family experienced salvation. He'll go on and tell us later on in the passage that the jailer took Paul and Silas home and they shared the way of the Lord with the whole family. That's how salvation came to the house. That's what happens when we're willing to step out of our comfort and speak to that one. Don't underestimate that one person, the impact that that one person can have. This is huge for us. Now, I want to show you one more thing that this abandonment of comfort does here, and it's that it helps us to follow Christ. It's it really, when it all said and done, that's what these three things are. Like we're, we're following the example of Christ. We're following after his steps, or as, the, as, as Peter would say in 1 Peter, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. This call out of comfort and into suffering, it's not like some surprise. This is, like, this is it. This is what the calling of following Jesus looks like. And just look back at what we just saw Paul doing. How many parallels did you see of our Savior? How many times did you see Jesus see a need in someone who was destitute? Someone being mistreated or experiencing a loss. And he stepped out into that situation in compassion and met that need. Brought healing. Brought restoration. Brought the forgiveness of sins. And how often was it a controversial thing? He he caught some slack for it. Just like Paul. Paul heals this girl and then he's hated for it. How about Jesus standing before his accusers silent? Letting them say what they said about him. Just like Paul sits there the whole time. Never once feels the need to say, hey, guess what? I'm a Roman citizen. We've been over just like that. He was silent. He took that beating just like his Savior did. He followed his steps. How many times on that last day for Jesus did he have such an easy option if he wanted it to just escape? He wanted to. He mentioned it in the garden. Like, is there another way? He didn't take the escape that was easy for him. And neither did Paul. Like literally, the red carpet was rolled out for Paul to escape. And he stayed. Because he's following the footsteps of his Savior. And then to the very man who had imprisoned him, who was holding his life in the palm of his hands, he looks at this man and says, Believe in the Lord and you will be saved. He offered salvation to the very man who had imprisoned him. Just as his Savior stood there hanging, bleeding on a cross, looked out at the men who hammered the nails and said, Father, forgive these men. When we abandon our comfort to follow in the footsteps of Christ, that's the example we're following. Someone who time and time and time again stepped away from comfort, left the most comfortable place in the galaxy called heaven to be here. That's whose steps we're following. That's what we are called to, to follow in his steps. And when you put all of this together, fighting injustice, finding comfort in the comforter, 
filling the kingdom by, by sharing the news that we have and then following in the steps of Christ. What's going on here is that this process of sanctification, of making us more uh, prepared for God, make, perfecting us, becoming more Christ-like, it's, that's what's being fueled. Our sanctification is being fueled by our willingness to step away from comfort into these areas when we're willing to do that. I'm, I'm reminded uh, of uh, a shoe company I've seen lately on uh, YouTube ads. I normally skip the ad, but you know when a video comes out and says, come buy this uncomfortable shoe, I kind of have to keep watching. And I won't say the name of the shoe because this isn't a paid endorsement. But basically this shoe is, is out to save your feet from what they call shoe coffins. That's the traditional shoe, like what I'm still wearing. Um, according to them, the shoes with all the padding and all the arch support, they're really harming our feet. And they're harming our balance and they're harming our posture because they're doing for us what our feet are supposed to do. You see, the, the comfort of the shoe is really weakening the muscles and the joints of our feet because it's doing for us what we're supposed to be doing. And the outcome is that you need more padding and more arch support and just you know, keep on becoming more and more and more weak. And it affects your balance and your posture and your strength. This is the danger of pursuing comfort above all else, is that it, it weakens us. It lulls us into rest. I have never, ever laid down on one of those nice memory foam mattresses and said, let's do some sit-ups. You just kind of fall into that cloud, and what do you want to do? Like, you don't want to work. You don't want to be active. You don't want to do anything. You just want to Stop and rest, right? This is what comfort does to us. It encourages us to be lazy. It encourages us to accept the world as it is, to focus more on ourselves and the world around us. And to settle for that is to be like the man who walks into the gym to work out and then very quickly stops at each station and walks away from any machine that's going to make him sweat. Why'd you go in the first place? Us walking away from comfort fuels our sanctification, forces us to work those spiritual muscles that God is trying to develop in us so that we become even more effective and even more able to be doing the work that we're called to. This is why Paul says to the, to the Corinthians, so don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. This wasting away, that's what happens to you when you get out of comfort, right? Like your body decays. As, I mean, Paul was weakened, obviously, by that experience in the prison cell. But as his body was wasting away, his spirit, his inner self is being renewed day by day. The more we walk away from comfort, the more we make our spirit the spiritual muscles we have able to grow and be strengthened and to be worked on just like they would in the gym as we sweat and grind and struggle. And we miss all of that if we make comfort and ease and stability our idols. We miss it. And we just stay there resting on the, on the memory foam cloud when there's work that needs to be done. Cruising on the luxury liner instead of hopping on the troop carrier and getting busy with the work that is right in front of us. This is a worthy calling. 
This is how we should devote our lives. This is what we should devote our lives to. And it's worth it. As we are uncomfortably comforted by our Savior, we grow, we engage in the gospel, and we build the kingdom if we're willing to. Now, let me just say this before I pray. Be reasonable. I'm not just asking you to like just run into pain just for the sake of it. Like, Don't go sell your mattress topper or put rocks in your shoes. That's not what I'm asking you to do. But just consider the way that your decisions and your priorities are making you into the person you are becoming. Are you settling for a life of comfort and missing an opportunity to be intimately involved with the comforter who wants to use you and use your circumstances to build you up and to expand his kingdom? That's the question we must answer. Let's be willing to walk away from comfort. Let's be willing to keep our eyes on the comforter and find all we need in him. And let's make much of him in the process. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your comfort that you are so much better than anything in this world that we could find as an alternative. You provide true stability, true security, true comfort. Everything else is phony and yet it is so alluring. So give us wisdom. Give us clear vision to see you and to treasure you and to rest in you as our comforter. God, take away the taste in our mouths for comfort and stability so that we can be used and useful for your kingdom. We want to make much of you uh, in the nations, in our country, and in this city of Spartanburg. God, we see it. We see the need. We see the darkness. We see the injustice. May we decide today to step away from comfort and into all that you want to do in and through us. And may we make much of you as we do. It's in your name we pray. Amen.